0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: You're going to be in Exodus chapter 34, nope, 35, verse 4 through 9, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 20 to 29. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me there. If you do not have one, look underneath the seat in front of you, and there should be one somewhere in that row. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you as a gift from us today. So if you are able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Exodus 35, starting in verse 4. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, Tanned rams, skin and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onks, stones and stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Jumping down to verse 20 now. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the, tent of the, for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen and goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goats' hair and the leaders brought the onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense all the men and women the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the lord had commanded by moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the lord this is the word of the lord Thanks be to God. You all can be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Surprised to see so many of you after the Astros win. You're a brave souls. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. If it is your first time, especially thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. We're continuing our march through the book of Exodus this year. We have started in January, and we're making our way towards the end of the year. I know you guys sense it and feel it. We're almost done with Exodus, all right? We've been doing a lot of work in this book. It's been fun. And this morning, where we're getting to is finally kind of rubber meets the road. Moses is going to come down from the mountain, second time, by the way. And he's going to have the tablets of stone and now they're going to get busy on building the ark of the covenant okay so this is the finally the time where he brings the word to the children of israel that they're going to need to start building something that is very intricate they're going to need to start building something that's been designed by god and that they're going to have to be careful to do it exactly how he called them to do it and then of course the biggest issue is it's going to require a lot from them particularly in generosity and so This morning we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about generosity, the generosity of heart, the generosity of our hands. And I think that what I want to pray for, and before we jump into the text, is the tedium of the topic of generosity is how to articulate pastorally something that has a a lot of consequence to it. There's a heaviness, there's a weightiness to the idea of being generous in the scriptures, how we deal particularly with things like money as Christians, the Bible says tends to lend a lot of weight to that and how it reflects the heart. Um, Jesus, it's often said that he spoke more about money than almost any other topic, which is, unless you're going to go to maybe some specific churches, uh, that's usually inverted in the church today. We don't talk as much about it because at the end of the day, there's a, a, what's the word? It's more of a pariah subject. It's like, oh, the pastor's going to get there and start talking about money, and it's going to be weird, and he's going to start, you know, bringing down Holy Ghost goosebumps to compel me to give in a way that I didn't want to give. And I came in here already broke. He's going to make me broker. And so there's that weirdness. You know, he's being manipulative. On the On the flip side, you know, the Bible's got a seriousness to it and, and a severity to it. And, a, hey, uh, our heart's reflected in our generosity, so we can't ignore that. And then, of course, what's hanging over it all is that we all know that there have been charlatan people not just pastors but people who've manipulated God's word to do some really evil things regarding money and so the tedium there is we need the spirit of God to speak to us in a way that we get invited by the word of God into the generosity of God and that he changes us to be more like him so that's the goal this morning that I'm aiming for is how can we be more like Jesus which just spoiler alert means we're going to be more generous okay but I want us to feel like that's not my hand in your pocket all right The Lord is the one who's moving your heart, okay? And that that conviction is from him, not from man. So let's start there. Let's pray together there. And some of you are like, you can pray. I ain't praying with you. But let me pray for you. And I pray that you'll, you'll join me in this and ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, thank you for your word. First and foremost, we come before you. We set aside that you are holy and perfect. There is none like you, Lord, in all the earth, And we know that we are coming before a great God who is generous to us. The very breath in my lungs right now are a testament to your generosity, Lord. Thank you that you woke me up this morning. You gave me breath and life. And you were generous enough to me that you might give me an opportunity to open your word before friends. And maybe those who are soon to be friends, hopefully. And I thank you for that, my God. We ask now and we confess to you that we are sinners in need of grace we confess to you God that we have fallen short of your glory that oftentimes not just in our lives but this week we have been self-centered and not centered on you so cleanse us now in your blood and Holy Spirit we ask that you would speak to us through your word so that we would leave out of here knowing that we were not compelled by man but by the Spirit of God that we might be changed and transformed by the power of of your word. And in so doing, my God, I pray that you would get all the glory and we would get the joy that more people would know you as the generous God that you are. And the liars who speak ill of you would be silenced in your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's just remember where we're at here. Moses is coming down from the mountain with these Two tablets of stone, it's the second edition of the Ten Commandments that God has written. And you got to love the uh, analogy here where God says, hey, come on back up to the mountain, I'm going to bring two new tablets of stone because I'm going to write these two new tablets of stone in the covenant that will be with me because you broke the first covenant. Now, if you didn't catch that, that's an allegory to Jesus showing up and saying, because you broke the first covenant, I'm going to make with you a new covenant. That's what was happening there, okay? Jesus is going to make a new covenant. And it's not based on new laws. It's based on the fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus, who by the very finger of God was casting out demons and doing all sorts of miraculous things. That Jesus showed up and he was the fulfillment of the law. God didn't change his mind. He just brings us a new covenant with the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So Moses, you know, it's kind of been, let's just agree, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride, okay, for Moses. He has high moments and he has really low moments. You know, about to get killed by all the Egyptians and the, the Red Seas behind him. Roughly a low moment. The Red Sea parts. He brings all the people across the Red Sea and the Red Sea falls back onto the armies of Pharaoh, I would say a rejoicing moment, although a gory one. And then after that, immediately the people are starving and they grumble against Moses and they say, we should probably kill this guy. I would say a low moment. And then he gets to go into the cloud and meet very, the very king of kings, lord of lords, the great I am, and speak with him as a man speaks with a friend. Can we all agree we didn't wake up in our devotion this morning and have that experience? If you did, you can have the face mic, but we're going to have to put you through a vetting process first to make sure that's legit, Okay. The truth is, we we would love something like that, so that would be a high moment. Then he comes back down the mountain, and he's got the tablets of stone, and he starts hearing from afar that there's a lot of shouting going on. And he says, what's the shouting? Are they partying? By the time he gets back down to the children of Israel after 40 days, they are dancing naked around a golden calf that they melted down to worship. So I would say, low moment. Goes back up the mountain, God says, I'm going to reestablish my covenant with you and he gives him the new tablets of stone he's coming back down the mountain but I say all of this to say Moses has a massive task ahead of him with all of the ups and downs he has a massive task necessary for the work that he has before him is both massive amounts of material and this is like uh for those of you who didn't grow up in the city let's say before Amazon came along and decided to drive their truck to you and bring you anything that you wanted, there were things that people that didn't live in the city could not just go to the store and buy, that city folk could go and buy for availability, right? That's why you go into the city, you'd see maybe women dressed up, you're like, oh my gosh, look at that jewelry. They didn't get that at the Piggly Wiggly in rural towns. Okay? Our our globalized world and technology has changed that a lot, but for a very long time was just a reality. Accessibility to certain materials was limited based on your geography now I say that to say check out the geography of Moses and the children of Israel they're in the desert God wants pretty intricate breastplates for the high priest he has specific designs that he wants for them to weave out in scarlet yarns I think the last time I preached I talked about this if you've ever tried to weave out anything that's not easy and they got to do this out in the middle of the desert, in the Sinai desert, in the Middle East. And here they are camping with Moses. Now, that's not the only issue. The limitations are not just the desert. It's not merely the materials. But I just want to make mention, at least 97% of the ups and downs of Moses have to do, well, let us say the downs, have to do with the people he's got with him. So it's not just we're limited by where we are, limited by what we have, but we're limited by who we're dealing with, okay? If if Israel was a pickup game of basketball, he's not dealing with a great team, at least not as they have been proven to be a great team. Like they have flashes of brilliance, mostly complain. That's what he has on his hands. Now the significance of the work makes the stakes even higher because what they're building is not just a piece of artwork you know or something for christmas they're building the place of worship for israel the very centerpiece of their society the thing that would make them unique among all the nations was that they would worship the i am all the nations would know that he was the lord and this is the place the dwelling place of god with israel so Moses is a deeply flawed man, as we all are, a sinful man, a broken man, but he's leading a deeply flawed people and an idolatry-prone people. They had just proven they were capable of staging a coup against him within weeks, grumbling incessantly, being massively impatient, so much so that they would be willing to create a god in their own image by melting down gold from their own jewelry boxes that they stole, they plundered from the Egyptians who had just tried to kill them, by the way, and their true God had rescued them from. So the question is, how is Moses coming down this mountain? How is he going to accomplish this? If you've ever been in the situation as a leader, or just a parent, maybe you're walking into a situation where you know the stakes are high, and you really need something to happen, but you're relying upon a less than reliable person to accomplish that thing. You have a, only a handful of options at your disposal. One of those that you have to think Moses could have considered is, will he use coercion? He knows God's on his side. Now, I want you guys to remember back a couple sermons ago, we know that God is on Moses' side and that he's pretty effective with the Levites in whipping people into shape. You guys remember what happened with the golden calf situation? He comes back down. He says, who's on my side? The Levites join his side. He says, get your swords and they just start going to town finding the people who created the calf. Then Moses is really mad. He's really worked up. He grinds down the golden calf to powder and makes a shake and hands it to all them and says, here, drink your idols. So Moses and power and force are not alien from one another. And in fact, if he's coming down the mountain, he may be thinking, maybe I should just go ahead and start with that right off the bat. Now, you may be thinking, oh, court, you're reading into the Bible too much. I would just say, you haven't read the history books enough. Most leaders do that. Most leaders have come down in the history books and just said, I'm going to force the people to do what I want. This started at Babel with Nimrod when he said, you're going to make bricks and you'll stop when I tell you to stop. And it's been like this, pretty much the rule, not the exception, since the beginning of history. So the fact that Moses comes down even after being proven by his own people that they are not going to listen to him and he doesn't use coercion should actually pique our interest. Why? Is he going to take matters into his own hands? He doesn't. Instead, what we see is the exact opposite of that, which seems like almost a certain failure tactic because he's going to do the thing that just got him into trouble earlier. He calls upon the children of Israel and he tells them, we have to give big. It's going to cost a lot. The intricacies and the details of this are important God said, I have to build it exactly according to the pattern he gave me. And then he says, but I only want those of you whose heart and spirit moves them to be generous. The rest of you stay at home. (laughs) It's like bad tactic. Does the government do that with you with taxes, by the way? have You ever had Uncle Sam call you and say, listen, we got a big spending. All right. Shocker. Don't worry if you don't want to give. If the spirit doesn't move you, don't pay taxes this year. Washington, D.C. would shut down immediately, all right? We'd all be like, the spirit has not moved me. I pray deeply about this. But Moses does that very thing. I only want those of you whose spirit is moved and your heart is moved by God to give in this way. In short, he comes down and rather than using coercion and authority and power and trusting himself and his crew, He trusts God and simply gives Israel God's word and God's command to them and trusts that the Spirit of God will move on their hearts. That's it. It's a very vulnerable move by Moses. Now I want to read to you again a little bit of the response to that. So Jenna read, Exodus 35 20 through 29 what happens is actually even more shocking than him not coercing them which is the people who had just been dancing naked around the golden calf and complaining against him and trying to stage a coup against him they come out in droves and start giving and working for the tabernacle. Genesis 20 through 29 I want to read chapter 36 verses I'm just going to read 1 through 5. You get a couple more characters we've already mentioned before. Bezazel and Aholiab. These are this particular guys that God had pointed out that were going to be skilled craftsmen. But listen to what it says. The Bible tells us that how Israel responded in Exodus 36, verses 1 through 5. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded and so Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought from doing the work on the sanctuary. Listen to this. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, quote, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work than the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout all the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now that one should blow your mind. Those people gave so much that Moses had to call and say, that's enough. Now I want to ask you again, and the reason I use taxation is because, again, this is a nation, So if the IRS decided to send us a letter and say, hey, guys, whoa, too much. Calm down your giving. We'd all be shocked. How about bringing it into the church, okay? If Israel is the Old Testament shadow of the church, if the church was at a place where it's like, hey, guys, honestly, like, I'm going a little overboard here, the gold giving thing. You ever heard that? That's what happened here in Israel. Moses literally makes an edict and says, like, Whoa. Um, you guys are giving way, way more than we need. Let's Everybody is forbidden from giving anymore. Now that is nothing short of, and you, we may see it as something like an aberration. Let me tell you what it is. Nothing short of a spiritual revival among the people of Israel right at the foot of Mount Sinai. Something had changed them in between worshiping the golden calf and Moses commanding them to have a heart to give and work. And the only explanation would be that God had changed their hearts, that they might be generous and not just sufficiently generous, radically generous, abundantly generous in the face of a difficult task. The best example that I have of this in the New Testament is the difference that we see between the disciples during the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and then after his appearing to them in the resurrection. What we see is that before, in the life of Jesus, and particularly in Passion Week, you get a lot of infighting between the disciples about who's greater. You get Peter being prideful and thinking that he could go even to the cross with the Lord Jesus, but yet then, when the rubber met the road, denying the Lord Jesus, even to a servant girl because he was afraid. See, of course, that Judas was willing to sell out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver, And all the disciples fled except for that one naked disciple in the garden that John talks about that we're not all sure who it is, but we're all pretty sure it's John. That's it. They're all very scared, not very courageous, not super generous, and yet they're still followers of the Lord Jesus. Similarly so, the children of Israel before Moses came down the first time while they were worshiping the golden calf, despite all their debauchery, it didn't change the fact that they are still the children of Israel very weak, very idolatrous, very foolish, not very generous, very self-centered, lots of impatience, still the children of God. And the truth is, when we talk about something like generosity in the church, often we're afraid to say the things that need to be said because they may be deemed offensive. But I just want to say that even though many of us can be so much less than generous, it doesn't change that we're children of God, which means then not that we should take it lightly, but that our Father, of course, if He loves us, is going to bring discipline on us and say, "Hey, um, you're my kid, but you're kind of greedy. You're my kid, but you're a stinge. Parents in the room, do you ever do that with your kids? I want you to think about this, right? Do you ever do this with your kids? You ever had your kids playing, and you know they play with a new kid you don't know, and you don't know their parents, but you know you know how your kids are a little bit nuts, so you're like, I don't want them to be too nuts because then the parents will think that I'm nuts. And then I don't want my kid to be too bad because or say things that maybe I've said in the car that I should not have said in the car. But now my kid repeats the very thing I don't want him to repeat. He never repeats the prayers that you give. Your kid never repeats the times that you encourage. Only the things that you say that, you know, you say under your breath and hope that no one else hears. And then your kid just says it out loud. And you're in that moment and your child does something like plays with the other kids. And the other kid unknowingly grabs that one toy that your kid is a rabid animal about. And so they begin a fight. And you run over there, and you may say something like, you need to learn how to share. You need to learn this is your toy. But let me just tell you what I do. I'll just speak for myself. What I tell my son is, but who gave you that toy? And he'll look at me, just stern face, doesn't answer. He knows the answer, but he ain't going to answer me because he's like, I don't care that you gave me this toy. It's mine now. Say, I gave you that toy. I'm sharing that with you. And then, of course, because, oh pastor, I'm just going to go on my soapbox. Like, you know where you sleep? My bed. You know where You know where the air condition? My air conditioner. You know this house? You like that roof you're not getting rained on? Guess who's that? Mine. I gave it to you. So you better share it with other people. You know, I go on this big rant. And you know what I don't like is when the Lord then looks to me and says, you know, you're kind of greedy. I'm like, far be it from me. I'm a pastor, you know. I don't like it when the Lord as my good heavenly father confronts me over these things, says, you know what I've noticed about you is, who gave you everything that you have? And then I do what Jonas does to me, and I stare at him. (laughs) not going to answer, but I know what it is. He gave me everything, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? God never asks us to give anything to him that he has not first given to us in the first place. And he he only asks for, marginally what he's given you. Something like a tithe is 10% of the thing he gave you. And this is really a parenting tactic, isn't it? We do this at Christmas, don't we? If you're, you know, you're young kids, it really doesn't matter what you You go into a dollar store, maybe you give your kids 10 bucks. You're like, go buy gifts for your family members. And then at Christmas, you know, you get that rolled up on a newspaper, like that one thing that You do not care one bit about, you know, like my kid maybe gets me like a a very cheap chalk like ceramic bear that he wraps up in newspaper and it's my gift for Christmas. It means the world to me because of him, not because of I actually am going to do anything with this. It's going most likely to be broken soon by him. But the entire transaction is me giving him dollars to give me gifts back, not because I need that, but because I want his heart to be changed to be a giver. I want him to be a man who gives gifts, doesn't just receive gifts. So I give him money to give gifts to me that I don't need. What does that sound like? God gives us material things. How much? Everything you have. So that you would learn to be generous, not because he needs your generosity. Acts chapter 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Remember the tabernacle. The bread of the presence was not for God to eat. It was so that God would feed the priests so they'd be reminded, I'm the one who puts bread in your mouth, son. I don't need your bread. Or when the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you must be hungry. We brought you lunch. He said, I have food from my father that you know not of. I don't need your lunch. Now that may seem rude from Jesus. He's teaching a lesson. He's not served by us. God's not served by us through generosity like he needs it. No, when we serve God, it's about changing us to be more like him. And we do this with our own children, and yet there's a massive disconnect when it's us and God, because there's these parts of our lives we compartmentalized, and we've made them off limits because people don't like feeling that sense that someone else's hand is in your pocket. Well, I have tragic, wonderful biblical news. God has never not been interested in your wallet. He is the one who filled it, and he's interested in its contents. But I have wonderful news for you. He also doesn't need any of that money. He's not like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not a pauper. He's not a beggar. And yet he desires your heart to be changed. Now, I could go on and I could do this with everything, right? I could say people are upset because they don't want God to be involved in their bedroom. But I have to tell you, the tragic and wonderful news is that God's interested Why? Because he created you, male and female. He gave you the desires that you have. He has an intention for you, has purposes for you. Should I go on or am I getting too far off track? There's more of these things, are there not? The things that you are not thinking you don't want God to touch are the very things he created you for and he's interested in. So the disciples, of course, after the resurrection, they what? They're bold, they're generous, radical. The same Peter that denied Christ, as tradition tells us, crucified upside down for Christ. All of the disciples died, martyrs, deaths, the very thing they were trying to flee from before the crucifixion. John's the only one who escapes that, but it's not like he gets a really, you know, get out of jail free card. He's just exiled to an island, you know, think castaway for Christ. That's tough. No Wilson. So I think that what we recognize here in Exodus is that the Spirit of God has changed Israel for a specific purpose, to make them radically generous. Nothing short of a profound experience with a living God can cause us to abandon our selfish tendencies, our selfish designs, our idolatry. Generosity stands uniquely at a place in the Christian life that few acts of worship stand in this place. They strike at the very heart of what it means to be like Christ. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is a father who gave his only son. And to mirror that is to mirror the very white hot center of the gospel. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, you could turn here. This is Matthew chapter number 6. And it's verses 19 through 24. Jesus is teaching to his disciples and he says... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to this line. For where your treasure is, draw a straight line, there your heart is also. What is giving about? It's always about the heart. It'll always be about the heart. It's never going to be about anything else with God. There will be many things that financial generosity, there'll be ripple effects from that financial greed there's ripple effects in the negative for that but at its very core at it's very heart giving and generosity and stewardship is all about the heart that we have to either worship and honor God or worship and honor self that's it he goes on the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light in you is darkness how great is that darkness the threat here is that We think that we can compartmentalize certain sins, something like greed or selfishness or haughtiness or stinginess. We could say, well, that's just a part of me. I'm really mostly good in all the other areas of my life. And Jesus says, no, this area will infect all other areas. It has a way of breaking the boundaries that you've set up for it. You know, greediness, a lust for control, a lust for your own ability to build bigger barns so that you feel secure apart from God. It starts to impact every area of your life. You can't just keep it in one corner. And then of course, here's the famous line, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in my Bible, probably yours, you'll notice there's a little annotation there, there's a footnote. In Greek, that word money means mammon, that's a pagan god. Money, mammon, is a pagan god, meaning that it really is a spiritual battle how we deal, how we handle money, is not over here in the normal, everyday, natural, secular sense. And then over here in spiritual things, we leave money over there. So it's like, there's budgets, here's prayer. That's not how it works. Jesus says, your budget sheet is a battle between Jesus Christ is Lord, the I am, or Mammon, the the false god of money, is trying to vie for your worship. And what the children of Israel do here is they slay the god of mammon now we're tempted to dodge this we'll say things like well i give in different ways i give of my time others might justify not serving you know with their hands by saying well i give financially but the problem with that is that the bible doesn't actually give that logic anywhere in the old testament we see here the children of israel in the desert are simultaneously giving of their silver and gold and then weaving constructing, building, that's hands and finances. They're doing both. Similarly, the New Testament church is called both to give financially and to serve. And Jesus never said, and choose one. He didn't say, do one or the other, or, you know, here you can do this one and then not this one. Or if you do this one, uh, like 200%, then you can do this one 0%. They're just commens- there's nothing like that. It's just like, these are just both of the things that we're called to do to be like Jesus. So the question that we should ask is, you know, what would it look like in our lives? churches communities if we practice this kind of wholehearted generosity and then here's how i want to thread the needle so that we're not feeling condemned how can we grow in this area and see it as an area of growth rather than feel as though we're just defeated let's turn to second corinthians chapter eight and this is the last verse i'm probably going to go to for time but this is paul talking about generosity and i think it's wonderful and i have three major points paul writing to the church at corinth for the second time he says I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's a lot of words to say. A very poor church going through great tribulation gave wealthily. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Notice the worship. First to the Lord. Who do you give to? Well, I give to this organization, that organization, I give to the... No. First to the Lord. Is that just church giving? No. All giving. First to the Lord. It's an act of worship to the Lord. All generosity is worship to the Lord. When I pay for somebody's meal... First, it's to the Lord. So when they say something like, thank you, whether I say it with my mouth or my heart, I say, thanks the Lord. He gives. I give to him first, and then what? And then by the will of God to us. This is First John, if you read the book of First John, in a nutshell. Love for God and love for neighbor are inextricably linked. They can't be taken away. If you say you love God but hate your neighbor, you're a liar and there's no truth in you. If you say you love your neighbor but you hate God, you're a liar and there's no truth in you because God is that neighbor's maker you don't have a neighbor without him. So those are inextricably linked and you have to get them in order. God first, then neighbor. Not God to the exclusion of neighbor, but God first, then neighbor. Let's continue. Accordingly, we urge Titus that that as he had started, so he should complete this act of grace among you. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Three main things. First one first way we can grow in the grace of generosity is to recognize that giving is a grace from God, not just a grace from you to others. Giving, the act of giving, is a grace from God to you before it's just a grace from you to others. Now, there's truth that you're extending grace to other people when you give, but that's not first what's happening. At the very heart of generosity, the Christian must know that you and I were not born generous. All you have to do is work at a daycare to know this. Humans aren't born generous. They're born looking out for numero uno. They're born looking out for themselves. They're born making sure that if the food on their plate is not commensurate to their hunger, they may get you to look the other way. So they might take some years. At least that's my experience with my own children. Now, what does that say about me? But let's continue. You're not born generous. If God left us to our own devices, we would not be giving generously. So every time you give freely, you need to recognize that's the grace of God working in your life. God is making you like him. Every time you see someone else giving generously, you need to tell them that you are recognizing God's grace in their life, that they would be willing to do something that's so outlandish, that's so counterintuitive. To give away something in a limited resource world is only an act of God reflecting a generous God. Number two. In order for us to grow in the grace of generosity, we have to understand that generosity is just one other area of Christian obedience that we have to grow in. Don't elevate it higher, but don't diminish it lower. What do I mean by that? When we put it in a category all on its own, and we say this is the one we don't like talking about, so we're really tender about it, we hurt hurt each other, we harm each other. We're not able to talk freely about something that's so intentional and so interconnected to our worship of God, and so it stays over here as the pariah conversation. But if you elevate it above every other conversation, it becomes an idol, which turns into pride that we're so generous, that we're so this, we do this. It's one among many. Listen to what verse 7 says. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul says it's like faith, it's like knowledge, it's like growing in your reading of your scriptures, understanding who God is. It's like growing in your speech. So for those of you who wake up in the morning and you are like me, you may say things that you wish you didn't say. Or you may not say things that you wish you did say. And then at the end of the day, if you're like me, you have at least a one-page paper to write on how you need God to take over your speech. And that's an area that you're trying to grow in by submitting to the Lord and asking him for the grace to move on your heart that you might speak the things that he would want you to say rather than just, you know, ready, fire, aim. Generosity is like this, no different. That if you fall into condemnation and make it the pariah conversation, there's no growth available. Or if you say, I'm just going to ignore it and act like it's not a big deal, there's no growth available. So you end up, either way, you fall into the trap of getting the results of disobedience rather than bringing it in alignment with Christ so that you can experience the joys of obedience. Lastly, we grow in the grace of generosity by meditating on and receiving the generosity of God. No one really walks in deep generosity in a meaningful way unless they receive the generosity from God in Christ. Listen to verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's at the very heart of it. You have to receive the greatest gift that was ever given, to know that God is more generous than you and I could ever imagine. God is not stingy. He does not hoard his storehouses of grace. He lavishes them upon us. We know this because of the cross. How much does God love us? How deep is his generosity? Deep enough to give his only son. That's how deep. And when you receive that, meditate on that. Just how amazing it is that God became flesh, dwelt among us, and gave himself up for us. Then and only then can you look at your bank account as the frivolous thing it is in comparison how temporal it is in comparison. You ever done this? You ever, if you really spend enough time, let's say, in like a museum with wonderful art. If you've ever been traveling and done something like this, you know, particularly if you go to Europe, you could do this because the museums are just filled with this kind of stuff. You're just looking at these majestic paintings and these statues. And then if you're anything like my wife and I, you know, it's not like you're staying in the Taj Mahal. You end up going back to your hotel and you look at hotel art. And I'm not saying that there's not some wonderful artists that do some things in hotel art, but I'm saying when in comparison with Michelangelo, you're like, oh, that's the difference. Now, you can be, I can be wowed at times because I may be the worst artist ever. I mean, genuinely. Your children are way better than me, all of them. I can barely draw stick figures. So for me, anytime I see someone draw something, I'm like, whoa, that looks kind of real. And it's not that great. It's like rodeo art, you know, red ribbon. But once you see the real thing, once you see something extraordinary, everything about art changes. You start to realize like there are gradations. There's meaning in your bank account. It's just frivolous in comparison with the glories of God and the treasures and the riches of Christ that he is offering you by faith. And once you realize that, that you can... This is what Jesus means in Matthew 6, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How? Use the temporal to make much of the eternal so that you're not ashamed when you get into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ one day and you see the heavenly realities and all the temporal dissolves away, you could say, I was able to leverage all of that for something that lasts. That's generosity. I want to close with this idea. Giving is not just an act of worship, it's not just an act of spiritual warfare against the pagan gods, it's an act of deep trust in God. When we give, and I mean every time, small or big, we say the material reality in front of me is not going to dictate my actions. But the spiritual reality that has been won for me on the cross will dictate my actions, Paul, being unafraid to ask everyone to give, whether they were wealthy or not wealthy, even the poor Macedonians, was a testament to the fact that he believed every person who chose generosity in Christ over self preservation had won a great victory over sin, and that that was a wonderful thing for them, no matter the temporal. He believed that. And so I encourage you this morning to see this text and prayerfully the sermon simply as an invitation to join Christ and be more like him in generosity. See it as something to grow in. See it as any other Christian virtue that you are looking to hone. Don't hear the enemy who would browbeat you at this moment in condemnation, but instead hear the invitation of Christ that when you trust him, he is trustworthy and you will have real peace. I can't tell you how many people I've pastored that have real anxiety And then if I start talking about giving, they think, you're trying to increase my anxiety. And I'm trying to show them the spiritual principle is, no, by giving, I promise you, the Lord will decrease your anxiety because what you're saying is, I trust you, Lord. If I had more time, it's actually in my notes, but I could give you countless examples of people who faithfully chose to give and God miraculously showing up in ways that you can't imagine. And then they would come back to me and say, I can't explain it to you. When you had that conversation with us, we were so worried. And then our car broke down and someone gave us a car. (laughs) And I I was like, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Now, that's the moment where you could turn it and make it manipulative. And, you know, I I could put on a white pearly suit and say like, and I can be 10 times better, you know, for three easy payments to God. No, God will take care of you. Doesn't mean we're not going to be have tribulation. We're not going to have suffering. Generosity is an act of trust, saying, "I'm not in control, God. You're in control, and I trust you." And the peace that surpasses understanding is a great gift that God gives to everyone who acts in obedience. Now, I want to say this because it's important before I pray. If you're not, if you're not a Christian in the room, or you're not sure, or you got invited here and you're like this guy, all I want you to consider this morning are two things. Number one, I do not want you to give anything, not a thing. And I mean that. What I want you to do is I want you to consider this morning the generosity of God in the gospel. I want you to really consider, have you ever been given a gift by anyone that even touches what God the Father has given you in his own son? I want you to consider receiving the gift by faith, that it was for you It wasn't just for your super spiritual neighbor who invited you here. It's for you and that you can receive it. And here's the best news, entirely by faith for free. I promise you that the discussion of generosity, for everybody who's a Christian in the room, I hope you can say amen to this. Once you receive that gift, the conversation of generosity changes drastically. I'm not as scared to hear about it because I understand what I've been given. But if you're not a believer, you're not sure, I want to read to you Romans 8.32. This is what Paul thought about God's radical generosity. He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about this. If God's willing to give his own son for you, what is he willing to withhold from you? <laughs> Unless it's for your good, right? Unless he's a father trying to withhold for the reasons that you withhold from your kids too the 13th ice cream last night. Because you know 12 was still pretty good. Friends, I want you to consider that. If he's already given us Christ, what is he withholding from us? What is he looking? Do do we really believe our father is a masochist, just loving our pain? Or is there more to what's going on than meets the eye? Let me pray for us. Father, I wish that I had more time, I could be more concise. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do with my feeble words what no man can do and that you would move on our hearts to trust you. You're a good God, a wonderful God, a generous God. Help us not just to sing those things or preach those things, but to believe those things with our whole heart and our actions be moved and changed by them. We do pray now, Holy Spirit, for the same kind of revival that Israel experienced at the foot of that mountain, that you might stir our hearts Cause us to be generous. Fill us with your spirit, O God. And for those under the sound of my voice who have yet to consider or receive or trust you, Lord Jesus, for salvation, I ask right now, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of their hearts to see the greatest gift ever given, to receive you with open arms because you have opened your arms for them. And I pray, my God, that all of our hearts would be changed as we meditate on receive and worship you for the great gift of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for all you are. Free us from any bondage that we may have around fear, desire for control, security, and help us to be a generous people, and in so doing, reflect your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.